The views and opinions expressed on this show belong solely to the hosts and their guests and do not reflect the views of any outside institutions unless explicitly stated. What's up, everyone? My name is Steve Vandewall, and I'm the host of Cannabis Cum Laude, a podcast devoted entirely to cannabis. This podcast will cover a full spectrum of topics, including cultivation, business, medicine, politics, culture, advocacy, and everything in between. Because let's face it, the cannabis industry is very complicated. It's robust, and it has a ton of moving parts. So it's going to be my job to help you understand it a little bit better. So tune in every week for a brand new episode. And if you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show. And if you really, really, really like the show and are interested in sponsoring, please shoot me an email at logistics at cannabiscumlaude.com. Now enjoy the show. All righty. What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Cannabis Cum Laude. Uh, it's been a while. I hope I remember how to do this. I'm really excited to be back in studio today with Paula Collins, who is a tax, a cannabis tax attorney in New York City. Paula's client base stretches across the country to California, Missouri, Minnesota, and most East Coast states. Paula is a member of the Social Equity and Diversity Committee of the International Cannabis Bar Association and a co-founder of the New York Consortium of Cannabis Accountants. She has developed a niche practice area and representation of the unlicensed cannabis shops. Paula, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. It's great to have you. Uh, I'm really excited to be chatting with you today. I want to give a quick shout out uh, to our colleague, Greg Procton, who put us in touch. Um, he was previously on the show a few episodes. I just want to say, Greg, thank you for the fantastic connection. Um, a common theme on this podcast, at least uh, for the last six months, is has been discussing the rollout of the market and specifically the legacy to legal transition, which seems to be something you're very deeply entrenched in. Um, but before we kind of get into that side of things, give me a little bit of background about how uh, you became so involved in this legacy to legal aspect of the cannabis industry. Well, I think everybody gets here, you know, on their own path. For me, what happened is I was teaching special education in New York City, public school. I was in a school for severely disabled children. Uh, that's a special district called District 75. Uh, in the high school where I was for my first three teaching years in New York, I was in a high school with 335 students with severe disabilities, and they were between the ages of 14 to 21, which arguably 14 to 21 is a disability all on its own, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I noticed that there were some children, parents told me that, you know, we've given him a little puff before school, he should be fine. And you could really tell when some of the kids had not had that little puff in the morning, they really needed it because these were students with um, autism. So they had a lot of the, you know, the flapping and the energy and the attention deficit. And boy, that medical marijuana really did help. There were also students with severe health issues. Uh, they Their parents needed to medicate them for appetite uh, stimulation. And so there was one mom in particular who told me she could not work because she needed to get to the school every few hours pull her child out of school, give the child tinctures, and then her, and her child was confined to a wheelchair, um, and then roll her child back into the classroom. The school nurse, because, because marijuana is still to this day a Schedule One substance, the school nurse at that time was not able to administer medical marijuana. I think there has been some relaxation on that, but I'm not even, I'm not actually sure where we are in New York City schools with that. So after that, uh, my last few years of teaching, I was in law school at night. That was, I entered law school and Colorado, Washington state had just legalized. And so there was a lot of talk, a lot of buzz, if you will, about banking, about inventory management, about uh, interstate commerce, and about all of the different things that make cannabis unique. Intellectual property is very different. Could landlords even lease to a cannabis business? So all of these things were happening and were being discussed when I was in law school. And I thought, wow, you know, what an opportunity 
to come out of law school and dive into a brand new industry where you have the opportunity to create brand new law. And also, you know, with just a little bit of homework, we were able to be experts because nobody else was doing this. Mm -hmm. A lot of law firms were not wanting to jump in because of the uh, rules of professional conduct. You know, we do have a law that's or a rule that says that we cannot aid and abet a crime that is ongoing. So how do you define that? Uh, same thing with the the accountants uh, rules. They to this day, CPAs really do struggle with can I even represent a client like this? Yeah, it's a lot of it's uh, I'm, I'm realizing this over the years. There's so many different issues. And even, you know, when you're a non-plant touching business and ancillary, you know, offer an ancillary service, whether that's accounting or legal or bookkeeping, there are still issues, like you said, with representing these clients or representing these legacy operators. And that's one of the things that I was really interested in talking with you today, because it seems like, you know, I think we can both agree, both agree that the key to New York's legal, you know, adult use industry or any legalized state industry for that matter is getting in the people who've already been doing it and doing it well and doing it in a way that's safe. Okay. The question becomes is how exactly do you define legacy operator? And it seems like the state has really haven't had a, had a, had a difficult time doing that. I haven't really been able to nail down a true definition. So I'm really curious, how do you define legacy? Well, it is a it's a difficult one. It's a tough one. I put legacy in comparison to licensed versus unlicensed. And so um, in that, if we go with that sort of a definition, then everybody who the only three entities that are licensed right now in New York State, other than the medical marijuana dispensaries, which have been around for a few years now, but the three adult use dispensaries that are uh, two are actually open and one is going to open February 13th. Those are the only licensed operators right now. And then that would make everybody else that is uh, selling marijuana actually um, legacy. Now, the, I get pushback on that because there are some legacy operators who say, no, my grandmother was in the kitchen packaging up marijuana and my uncle was running weed out into the neighborhood. Um, or people will talk about back in Jamaica or Haiti or Puerto Rico, they remember their their aunt stirring a pot and infusing some type of oil that were was given to people for for medicine. And so there are people who think that that is legacy. And then these smoke shops that are popping up everywhere, it seems like in New York City, they call those illicit. <coughs> so I push back on that. First of all, I think illicit is a very, very strong word. Mm -hmm. But that is the word that uh, I would say in about the last nine to 12 months, New York OCM has been using legacy versus illicit to distinguish between, you know, the the kind of classic weed operator uh, versus somebody who has a shop, they've signed a lease, they've put out a neon sign, and they are ringing up sales. So um, I I still break it down to either we're licensed or we're not. Yeah. Now, and I forget the, the number that you told me the other day, um, but it's significant. And I'm talking about the number of days that it's been since the MRTA uh, was legalized. Right. And this well, whole process of rolling out a program which has been done to the tune of now 15 to 17 times before us, you know, starting with the likes of Colorado, California, you know, Illinois, Michigan, et cetera. So uh -huh, uh -huh. X of many days, it's in the high 600s, I believe. Paint me a picture of what exactly is going out in the context of this, the legal rollout in New York right now. So the legal rollout, by the way, yesterday was day 666. So I don't know if you get into the spookiness and the significance, somewhat demonic yeah. uh, overtone of, of or undertone of that number. But yesterday was day 666 since uh, the governor at the time, who was Andrew Cuomo, signed the law into uh, the bill into law 
and we now have the MRTA, the Marijuana Regulation and Taxation Act. So that was signed March 31st, 2021, and we've now had today, uh, as of today, 667 days since that was signed. Um, so, gosh, you know, a, a lot has happened. We've, we've brought soldiers home from Afghanistan. We've uh, participated and also watched with horror as Ukraine has unfolded. We've seen a post-COVID economy at first seemed to be very robust as people were enthusiastic about, uh, gee, I've got this money, I've kind of had a break, maybe I'm going to go out and spend some of this money. And now, of course, uh, the commonly viewed uh, perception is that we are, if not already in a recession, certainly headed to one. New York City is on target to be completely broke, to operate a at a deficit as of July 1st, uh, 2023. So a lot has changed in 667 days, but the ability for me to take a phone call from a client who says, I would love to have a license to operate a cannabis business, uh, my answer hasn't changed. Gee, I can work with you. I can bring you along in the process. We can get everything ready to go, but I cannot apply for a license on your behalf right now. Yeah, and you know, it's I'm can imagine it's kind of frustrating both as you know the attorney and as the client because you know there's people like me and there's a lot of me's out there who even since the days leading up to the MRTA have in some ways started preparing for licensure, looking for real estate, assembling your team, putting together your your SOPs, building your brands, all that, and now it's 667 days later, and. I still don't know when the license that I want is going to be available. I still don't know when the other, the indoor cultivation licenses are going to be available. We still don't know when the rest of the card licenses are going to be available. So how do you possibly begin to even advise somebody or talk to somebody when nobody really knows what's going on or what the future, what's coming tomorrow? Because just like we said on the phone the other day, it seems like things are changing on a weekly basis. Even the OCM's language is changing. And, you know, we were kind of, mm -hmm. you know, poking fun at their PR. It's like, it's at this point, it's how do you, how do I, you know, how do you possibly help somebody who is seeking a license navigate these very, you know, unknown waters? It seems impossible. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And um, to your point, New York was not the first state to legalize. And that bill, the MRTA that was eventually signed into law, was not the first bill that was put on the floor of the New York legislature. And so um, one would have thought that they would have, you know, been doing their homework and had a license framework kind of ready to go as soon as the law was signed into effect. And we can all understand they had to wait. First of all, then Governor Andrew Cuomo, um, was it intentional or was it just that he was busy with COVID or was he busy with corruption? We really don't yeah. know. Um, but he didn't create the OCM. It, it took until um, September of that year when Kathy Hochul became governor for OCM to be created. And you would think then there would be this feeling of, yes, we've appointed these people that were following that legislation and they were, OCM was created September 1 and here are the rules October 1. But no, um, it, it's as if they wanted to build from the ground up. And, 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 you know, I think I'm not alone in that many of us thought, okay, New York, New York is going to do this right. They wanted, they want to prioritize social equity applicants. They want to do the right thing by creating a fund. They want to do the right thing by creating these really unique licenses, like the micro-business license is somewhat unique. I don't think there are very many states. I think since then, Vermont has something similar. Um, also, the, um, the cooperative license mm -hmm. is unique. I, I don't know of other states that have successfully yeah. pulled that off. And it's funny because 667 days later, we have other states copying what New York has done. We have other states that created a social equity fund. We have other states that that started thinking, yeah, you know, we really could prioritize social and economic equity applicants. We really could create a cooperative license or or a micro business. And yet 
they've gone on and done it and New York is still waiting. We are in a comment period that is mandated by the state whenever there are proposed regulations. That comment period changes depending on which set of rules. So for example, the packaging rules, that comment period will, will close January 30th. Um, I think we just approved, I believe I'm correct, the testing rules and the uh, the overarching rules and regulations for adult use will that that comment period will close February 4th. Now, it remains to be seen. Will the state take in all of these comments and say, gosh, we need to amend and we need some, first of all, some time to read through all the comments? Or are they going to do like they did with the proposed card rules and say, thank you very much to all who responded and the rules stand as they are. Yeah. And then some weeks later, they did issue comments, you know, feedback on the comments, but nothing, in fact, changed. Yeah, and I remember, I don't remember who told me this, but they were still working their way through the card applications for a long time. So you got to oh, imagine. they're still working through them. They're right? still Nine, working through them. Over 900 applications, then all of a sudden you're going to throw in packaging regulate, a whole packaging regs package, and then an adult use license package that's a lot of material to go through and knowing how long it's taken them to just get through card i feel like you know and i've been hearing you know rumors about the remaining licenses are coming out in the summer and i'm like this but just seeing the patterns and the trends that have you know happened over the last year something tells me that i still feel like we have a a long road ahead of us i hope not and you know that's just a guess on my part but everything that we've seen in the past one years lends me to believe that there's still some time before, you know, we see these more licenses or who, like you said, who even knows if they'll take the the comments and actually change up, you know, their regs. They could very well say, nope, it stands as is. Um, I guess that's TBD for the moment. You know, Jeffrey Hoffman, who's an attorney uh, here in the city who has that weekly LinkedIn Live, which is then linked into the New York Cannabis Insider publication. Um, Jeffrey was able to make comments yesterday at the OCM meeting at which they announced another 30 provisional card uh, licensees, which was very exciting. And Jeffrey was quite gracious and he said, it's so exciting. We have these 30 new and we have the, the, the three shops, but there are the other people and he really got people's attention when he said this. He knows, and I know, that there are card applicants who skipped paying rent that month. You know, the application was $2,000. Some people skipped paying rent or they delayed paying rent because they needed to put that money towards their card application. They don't know. They have no word from the state. Now, we can all understand that there's a federal injunction because of the Verisite case. And that is preventing the state from actually awarding card licenses in much of the state, including Central New York, Finger Lakes, Western New York, Mid-Hudson, and Brooklyn. I think I'm leaving some area out. Um, but so a lot of the state, they can't actually move forward, but they can at least tell people you're provisionally accepted. Yes. You can't move forward because of this injunction, but we want you to be able to to, to make plans, especially yes. now that the social equity money is in doubt. Well, that's the thing. It's like, that's all I would want with somebody to say, here's your nod. Here's written. You have a license. You cannot operate. You cannot grow. You cannot sell, but you can build and do whatever you have you need to do. Mm -hmm. That's all a lot of people are looking for is just the official nod. Okay. Now I can expand. I can do all these things, but how do you start to, you know, build out a facility or upgrade your real estate or do all this when there's so many unknowns it's a huge risk in an already very risky industry you know it's exactly. ask, it's asking a lot of these you know these small businesses to to shoulder a lot of risk uh with unknown timelines and uh it's it's really not fair really yeah and mean meanwhile more smoke shops popped up mm -hmm. so i'm really interested let's let's I want to discuss uh, your proposal of a transitional license because like you, I also, you know, in Rochester, there's smoke shops and there's real dispensaries, not even hiding as smoke shops, real dispensaries like you would never know. And they're clean and they have tested products and they are, they look as legal and compliant as possible, but they are not. Now I'm, 
I'm one of the people that says, here's this, this, this case study of this company that's already doing it and doing it well, it would, and generating revenue and tax revenue, it would make more, most sense not to enforce these people who are already doing it, but to find a way to transition them into the legal market. You have proposed a transitional license, which I think is a brilliant idea. Uh, can you explain that to me, please? Yes. So as you say, there are business businesses that are up and running and that are extremely profitable. And so what I propose is that we give a time limit, maybe just for the purposes of the, this discussion, 90 days. So we say from what's today, January 26th, from January 26th for the next 90 days, People can log into a website and can register to be a uh, to to get a transitional license. In order to do that, they will have to show that they have a certificate of authority to collect sales tax. That's something that somebody gets on the New York Business Express site. And in order to really do that, you also have to have a bank account. So I'm saying this with deliberate speech because honestly a lot of smoke shops don't have bank accounts they are strictly cash yes. business or their clover account is sent or whatever point of sale that they're using is sent to another account so they need to have a business account um of course they need to have been established as an entity with an ein a federal ein uh in addition to certificate uh, of authority to collect sales tax they'll have to show that they have workman's comp insurance and that they've established a payroll system so that um, FICA, you know, regular Social Security and Medicare taxes being withheld from the employees. It also holds that employer accountable for um, properly reporting that revenue. You've gone are the days where you can say, oh, you know, if you do this for me, I'll give you, oh, let's say 140 bucks and some weed. No, we want people to be paid on the books and above, above the above the line, you know. Um, then after they've done that, they also need to demonstrate that they have properly filed personal and business uh, income tax. Many of my weed shop guys, when I first meet them, have not filed in years, if ever. So if you take somebody who's been running weed just in the neighborhood maybe they've had a bike or a, a, a vehicle or it's even hand delivery a lot of guys are selling in the parks um they have been below radar since they were teenagers and so they may have never ever filed a tax return so let's get that fixed up once they've demonstrated oh also i want them to show a standard operating procedure for verifying the identification of the people who are buying from them. A big pushback has been, well, they're selling to children. Well, let's fix that. First of all, I really do question the sales to children. I've heard horror stories of kids leaving school and going directly to the smoke shop and spending 60 bucks on gummies. I would never give my kids 60 bucks to spend on gummies, but you know, maybe you do. Maybe you have more money than I did um, when my kid was little. Then um, the other standard operating procedure is to establish, now testing is a hot, a hot, hot button because first of all, in New York right now, there are only seven testing labs. So if all of the smoke shops started sending products to those seven labs, you can imagine there would be such a backlog of work mm -hmm. that the, the lab technicians could not process everything. But let's establish a chain of custody because for every product that's in a smoke shop that was provided by a distributor, or, you know, a weed guy. <laughs> Let's find out where the weed guy got it from. Let's trace it all the way back to the farm so that if somebody gets sick, we can say, where did this product come from? What's in it? Who treated it with whatever? Um, once a business owner has established all of these things, which is a tall order, that's why I'm saying 90 days, then that business will be given a provisional conditional license. Now I'm using two words that are you know, you're on the right path, but you're still not there. So provisional, conditional. Once they have that, then they have another task, and that is to approach the community boards or the municipalities, depending on how that area is zoned. And the reason for that is there has been a tremendous pushback on uh, communities saying, we, we don't want a, a smoke shop there. We were supposed to establish them along the same patterns as the state liquor authority requires. But because, you know, it's post-COVID, 
landlords are really needing tenants. And if smoke shop owners were able to persuade a landlord to let them sign a lease, which obviously they have been able to do based on how many shops are in existence, the 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 neighborhoods are saying, whoa, whoa, this is too much. We need to zone it differently. Yeah. But let's follow that pattern with the state liquor authority and have that business owner present to the community board or to the city council or whatever kind of zoning board there is. If they fail, in other words, if the that community board says, nope, we really don't want you there, give them another 120 days to find another location and reapply. So surely in that time, they can find another location. Yeah. If they can't, you know, maybe we really need to have a discussion with that business owner of this is not the time and place for you to operate. Yeah. Maybe you need yeah. to go merge with somebody or do something. But once they've passed that, once they've gotten the stamp of approval from the community board, then give them a conditional license. And I say conditional because another bit of this picture, the legacy versus the illicit is this feeling of, the illicit shops or the unlicensed smoke shops jumped the line and the legacy operators were out in the streets. They were going to Albany to advocate. They've been to all the different council meetings and tried to get these laws in place. And yet these other shops jumped the line. So let's ding them a little bit temporarily for one year. Let's not allow them to run delivery. Let's not allow them to do anything other than have their smoke shop, which is different from even the card license. You know, that was another big surprise when mm -hmm. we learned about the ins and outs of the card license, which was you can have as many as 25 full-time employees running delivery. Well, that's like another delivery license. So if you want to ding those uh, shops that are currently in existence, let's say for one year, no, 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 you need to wait. You need to bide your time and let these other lic state licensed shops come on board. And then, you know, recently I've had the, the idea of, Let's tax the smoke shops 2% more to, to re, replenish that mystery social equity fund that seems to have gone. Was it ever there? We don't know. But let's tax them an, an additional 2% because there's been a lot of pushback on while well, you're selling your products for so cheap. Of course, the licensed shops cannot compete because of price. So for one year, while they're conditional, let's let's have them pay an additional 2% on top of the sales tax, on top of their FICA. Now, this is going to be a really hard thing for these shops to do. I'm not asking for small hoops. I'm asking for some big hoops. These are going to be pain points when, when that business owner is having payroll tax deducted from his checking account. It's a lot. When that business owner is told, yeah, it's a lot. It, it's very expensive. Even just buying... Uh, a workman's comp policy is not an easy thing to do. So there will be some pain points. And quite frankly, some shop owners will say, you know what? I can't do this. I'm going to close shop. I'm done. And that's what the state wants. The state wants to find who are the really sincere players and who who um, who's just in it for a quick buck and to get out the door. I can tell you in my own experience. Now, these are the people who are organized enough to reach out to an attorney Um in my experience, most of the shop owners want to be compliant. Yeah. Most of the shop owners want to have a license. Most, Many of them actually think they do have a license yeah. when they have a hemp license or a cigarette license because they say, well, it's legal now, isn't it? And definitely the shop workers, you know, the clerks that are hired. If I go into a shop and I say, hey, here's my business card. If you decide to get licensed, let me know. Nine times out of 10, a clerk is going to say we're already licensed it's all legal <laughs> that's the thing i mean a lot of people got into this and all, all i would say a large you know proportion of the shops around here think that they're doing the right thing they're out in the open they're checking ids you know thinking that they're doing everything by the book but the reality like you said earlier in the show there's only two with three coming online next month legal dispensaries in the entire state mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. I, uh, I, I do think that we're, you know, obviously this is, you know, that's some big hoops to jump through and not to mention you start looking at payroll taxes and all these workers comp taxes, plus I'm guessing paying all the years of back taxes, you know, that's yeah, going to be it's significant. really challenging, especially for a business who may not have ever had a bank account. 
You know, how right. do you, how do you, you know, these, these things start to add up. And these are conversations I've had with legacy market people where they say, you know, even if I could get in, is it worth it? You know, is it worth it? That's a real, right. that's a real question. Economically speaking, you know, the legal cannabis industry, especially in the state of New York, isn't super sexy, especially from a retail perspective. You know, you start looking at effective tax rates and 280E and all these hoops compared to the old legacy market on, you know, unchecked, no taxes. It's really, a, it's a much more difficult business. And I think it's leaving, I think it's keeping a lot of legacy people from entering the, entering the market, even if there was a legal pathway. What I'm getting well, at- Sorry, what we're ahead. learning more about is New York's potency tax. Yeah. I, and I, you know, just before you and I got on this call, I printed out an article by attorney Jason Klimek, I think yeah. is his name. He's out of Rochester. Um, right. And so he has written, he has partnered with somebody uh, and has written this really thorough analysis of the potency tax mm -hmm. and what that's going to do. On, you know, right out the gate, what you realize is, the compliance burden is is huge because I am, you know, I'm an enrolled agent. That means that the IRS put me through three different exams uh, to make me a tax expert. That is the highest credential that the IRS offers. Oh, wow. I can't make sense of it on first blush. I've got to really dive in and do some homework. I'm admitted to practice in the United States tax court. I'm going to have to do my homework if I have a case like this because yeah. the potency tax is really no. Actually, the New York potency tax would not go into the United States tax court. But you get my point that um, this is not easy stuff. This is not. Oh, my aunt Susie knows a little bit about QuickBooks because she took a couple of community college courses. Mm -hmm. No, Aunt Susie won't be able to calculate these taxes. And so you think, well, it's only once a year that you have to calculate these taxes. Actually, on cannabis tax. You're going to have to regularly pay those taxes through the through the New York Cannabis Tax Portal, which, by the way, that's another six hundred dollars. So you take your card applicant who didn't pay his rent because he needed to submit for the card application, and then you say, okay, for you to get this license and really open, it's another six hundred dollars for the, you to even register on the portal to pay your taxes. Mm. It's tough. It's really really tough. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's really been, in my opinion, about extracting as many dollars as possible from this industry. I mean, I think the reality is, is this, you know, I think that what would have been, what would bring the most legacy people in and allow them to succeed and really see, uh, uh, an explosion of small business would be lower taxes, lower red tape and lower regulations. And when that happens, you see, you know, we see a huge problem in employees jumping from company to company in this industry, right? There's a huge mm -hmm. issue with retention, training is expensive, and yet that's just another cost to add to the burden that these, these operators are facing, you know? And I think part of it is because margins are so low that people can't really, you know, you can't really pay them good wages to stick around and train them. So, um, I think when you start looking at things like lowering taxes and lowering compliance costs that give these operators a little more room to play, especially until, you know, 280 hopefully goes away one day, you know, you're going to see a lot more operators kind of come online. You're going to see a lot more operators that are more profitable just because I think right now it's just everything is tax here, compliance costs here, back taxes here. It becomes really unattractive to enter the legal market, in my opinion. And I think the state, if they don't do some serious, you know, I think tax reform this year, I think they're going to be continuously fighting the legacy market until they have no choice but to 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 let them in and incentivize them to come in. Cause right now, at least a lot of the, the people that I know who've been doing it for a long time, they're set up where they'd never ever have to go legal, right? They've been doing it this long. How do we get those players in is the question. And I think, you know, I do think that some tax reform this year, and I think, you know, figuring out how to make this business more economically attractive to these operators is gonna be key. Cause if not, I, I, I do think the state is gonna have trouble you know, kind of increasing legal market particip participation and slowly starting to see that illicit legacy market go away. But the cost of doing business, plain and simple in this space, is really, really high. Unfortunately, um, if you're asking for 
tax reform in this area, the only reform that has been proposed is actually an enforcement tax against those who either get a license and then allow diversion of product. In other words, um, there are a lot of people who think, okay, my buddy here, he's going to get a, a license, but then we're going to continue running this smoke shop over here or these two or three smoke shops. And it's all going to work out because because we've got this agreement. And so if I say, well, you know, you, you're going to have to be listed as a true party of interest if you're going to participate. Oh, no, 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 no. We just have this verbal agreement. Well, then you're going to start to see product that did it go to this the license shop or did it go to the other shop or did some of the product from the other shop that's really good go over to the license shop? So if so, the only tax reform that's been proposed has been, first of all, that they would with the state would withdraw that cannabis tax registration mm -hmm. from a business owner that did that. In other words, effectively getting them unlicensed. And then they would also impose a tax lien based on the number of times that this happens. Then the other uh, tax reform that has been proposed has been stripping somebody of their certificate of, of uh, authority to collect sales tax if they never had a cannabis license at all. So that bill um, is an amendment to two or three of the provisions of the New York tax code. That bill was proposed in, I think it was January 4th of 2023 by Senators Kruger and Hoyleman Siegel. Now, what's interesting is Kruger is, uh, Kruger is the one who initially proposed MRTA, mm -hmm. right? So now she's starting to hear from her constituents that she's got all these smoke shops and, oh my goodness, what can we do about it? She's been on the news a couple of times about saying, well, directly across from my office and in uh, Manhattan, there is a smoke, there's a truck that keeps getting violations, but they can't seem to close it down. The other thing about tax reform is California, just as of uh, January 1st, uh, has tax reform that kicked in. Actually, technically, it kicked in in that as of, I think it was November 1st of 2022, they were no longer collecting the cultivation yeah. tax in California, which was a huge deal. But so many California cultivators have turned in their licenses mm -hmm. and gone back to legacy or left the industry altogether. There have been so many disasters, that, uh, you know, natural disasters or fire disasters. So one wonders, was this too little too late? Yeah. Because, of course, now it's interesting if you want California weed, I'm told, just walk the streets of Manhattan and mm -hmm. you will find plenty of California It's weed. everywhere. It's here. It's in Rochester. Cali weed is everywhere. Right. And so, you know, and, and the pushback has been New York is kidding itself if in the first two or three years they can overcome the um, favorability of the California weed, that most consumers prefer California weed. We don't really know, but I I don't see tax reform happening in New York anytime soon except for enforcement purposes yeah i thought it was interesting because i read jason's um um document too that he put together regarding mm -hmm. the potency tax and he actually recommends dropping that potency tax and doing a, a straight 20 percent retail tax which in my opinion i think is still a little bit high i think somewhere in the realm of 15 percent would be ideal um but I know that there are a couple of, of advocacy organizations in New York State that are going to be pushing tax reform this year. You know, I think it's frustrating because, you know, I, I testified to the joint legislative budget hearing on taxes last year at the Senate Finance Committee or a couple of years ago, excuse me, in the Assembly Ways and Means Committee. And I actually my, the main source that I used in my presentation was Jason Klimek's original tax proposal for the MRTA. And I pretty much just walked, you know, everybody had their own document. It had tax data from all the different legal states. And it said, you know, hey, listen, if you follow in the direction that we're going in now, like California did, this is what's going to happen. You know, we, we laid out all these different case studies of if taxation looks like this, this is what's going to happen. If ta taxation looks like this, these are the positive things that are going to happen. And yet, you know, and I, and I, 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 I think if Governor Hochul was in office at the time, you know, when this was all being passed, I think the bill would look a lot different. But long story short, we were 
banging our fists and our pitchforks screaming from the, you know, the top of our lungs. Don't do it in this fashion because this is what's mm -hmm. happening. Fast forward years later, you know, it, it's, we're kind of following in the steps of what California did, which take, took so much damage as an industry that they had to drop mm -hmm. their cultivation tax. You know, like I said, yeah. is it little yeah. too late? I don't know. I was hoping maybe they'd see that and say tax reform, let's do that. Let's get that off the ground and running before the leap, the industry gets too mature, but I don't, not sure that's going to happen either. Unfortunately. Well, I could see it going a couple of different ways. One is, um, as much as I um, hear what people are saying about the high, the high cost in the licensed dispensary is solely due to the taxation. Okay, that is legit. But if you look at the high cost of cigarettes, cigarettes, the consumer is paying somewhere between 90 and 97% taxation by the time they buy a pack of cigarettes. So uh, alcohol, the same thing, I think it's in the 75% to 85% taxation. And then definitely if you order a cocktail in, in a lounge um, where you're being served, you're you're up at like 150% of in taxes yeah. by the time you figure out all of the taxes that are placed on that. So cannabis is actually taxed at a lower rate. Cannabis is being taxed a bit like marshmallows or sodas, right? But the only way we're going to equalize is if we have fewer unlicensed mm -hmm. shops competing with the licensed shops. So how could we do that? We could do that with a transitional a license. license. Yep. In other words, bring more people into the land of tax, let them see the benefits of, they don't have to worry about being raided. They don't have to worry about the neighborhood circulating a petition and putting pressure on the sheriff's office to shut them down. They don't have to worry about the IRS imposing such onerous taxation on them belatedly that they're effectively out of business. Mm -hmm. Bring them into the light of day, and then that price difference will equalize over time. It might take a generation, but it will equalize. And, you know, it's funny that you say that because in, in the uh, document that I was referring to, Jason Klimek's original document uh, from a few years ago, he actually says, it seems that, you know, customers are even willing to pay 10 to 15% higher mm -hmm. in the legal market for the same exact product, right? Because it's safe and it's legal and it's a more trustworthy source. When you start getting higher than that is when people start to go back to, you know, their legacy dealer or whatever. But I think, mm -hmm. you know, the moral of the story is prices are going to be higher. You know, we're, there's nobody denying that. The problem right now is, A, there's only a, two shops to get quality or product from. From what I've been told, and I think this is pretty obvious due to the lack of indoor cultivation, the quality of the product right now is mid to low grade, and you're still paying these super premium prices, which may be okay for really high quality indoor growing weed, but when you're paying to the tune of $65 to $80 an eighth for outdoor cannabis, you know, only a matter of time before people start to wake up and say, why am I paying this much for this quality when I can go back to this guy and pay this much for better quality? You know, so I do think more, more, you know, uh, pr producers, more cultivators, more manufacturers, more indoor, you know, we'll start to see higher quality products. But I just feel, you know, high taxes, lack of accessibility for of dispensaries, lack of producers and manufacturers, you know, until they start to you know, put more licenses at all. I, I do think they're going to have, they're going to be fighting a, a losing battle against the, the unlicensed market. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, bef I want to switch gears a little bit um, because you wrote an interesting article recently about housing works and particularly the ability for a nonprofit organization to obtain a cannabis license to sell weed. Um, can you break that article down for me? Because after I, Greg sent me that and then I sent that article to another group of professionals. I'm like, this makes perfect sense. Can anybody understand how this is happening? Uh, so the fact that I have the source here is amazing. Can you break down that article and kind of the reason that you wrote that? Yeah, sure. Um, it actually came out of a conversation that I had with my colleague, Allison Kirschhofer, who's the co-founder of 
uh, the New York Consortium of Cannabis Accountants. We were talking with um, kind of a mentor that we have who's on the West Coast. Who, she's in Oregon. Um, and she was shocked that we were talking about nonprofits because if you say, uh, oh, my client established his cannabis business as a nonprofit to somebody on the West Coast, uh, especially somebody working in Washington State or California, um, it, it sets off all of these big alarms because that was one tactic that business owners would use a few years ago in order to try to skirt around 280E. They thought, well, we're nonprofit. We don't have to participate in that taxation regimen. Um, in fact, the IRS um, has spoken out and said, if you're a nonprofit, you cannot engage in Schedule One substances. And so, but then the, the other pushback that I get on this is that there are entities, you know, the ACLU is a nonprofit. They advocate for cannabis. There are a lot of veterans organizations who advocate for cannabis. There are other um, medical entities that will, again, advocate for someone's right to use medical cannabis. They might even have cannabis in their name and they have achieved and maintained their 501c3 status. So then you fast forward to housing works, which is if you say housing works to somebody in the New York City area, they're thinking, oh, great, I'm going to clean out my closet and take all of my junk to Housing Works because Housing Works maintains this robust network of resale shops throughout the city. You can drop off stuff. You can also find super cool stuff. If you're looking for vintage clothing, go to Housing Works. Um, if you need to outfit a new apartment, go to Housing Works. Some of my furniture is from Housing Works. It's kind of ubiquitous. And so the fact that they wanted to go from these retail consignment shops into a retail cannabis industry was not too much of a, a leap. In fact, I attended the community board meeting where they presented and somebody said, you know, you, you obviously know how to do retail. What Housing Works really does and what's in their mission as to why they are established as a 501c3 is way back. Um, they were really significant in AIDS education and support of AIDS victims right at the height of the AIDS crisis. So when AIDS patients had difficulty finding a place to live or finding uh, medical care or getting their prescriptions, Housing Works was there. So they they have a warm, you know, most New Yorkers have a warm, fuzzy feeling about Housing Works. When I had this conversation with my colleague, who's an accountant in Oregon, and she said, you're kidding me. What is with this nonprofit thing? They're going to lose not only their nonprofit status for the, the cannabis business, but then the IRS could potentially say, guess what? You're now engaged in a Schedule One substance, which is federally illegal, and therefore we're going to strip you of your entire 501c3 status, which would be devastating because Housing Works has a, a revenue base of tens of millions of dollars every single year. Likewise with the Doe Fund, who is the, the organization that will have uh, a dispensary opening, they're doing a soft open on February the 13th. Likewise with the other, I think there are uh, four other nonprofits that are conditionally uh, or provisionally licensed through the card program. So it again speaks to what were the people at OCM thinking when they built this provision in? Was it just, oh yeah, we want to find some organizations that have done some really good community work, they glommed onto this nonprofit term thinking that's the way to go. But I don't think that they consulted with somebody who really knows nonprofit taxation. Yeah. And, and you know, I, it seems like Housing Works has done a lot of good things over the years. I'm pumped they, you know, have a license. But I had to think, you know, you get a nonprofit designation, 501c3, 407 from the federal government, right? And which is really why cannabis is as big of an issue, you know, as it is because of its schedule one federal status. To me, it blew my mind that a federally designated nonprofit could sell weed. Um, and I hope that, you know, years down the road or months down the road, the IRS doesn't come saying, you know, like you just said, and start stripping them of their designation. That would be tragic. But you have to wonder, like, that seems like a real possibility but you also you know this is a, a an established institution 
millions and millions of dollars. They have access to great lawyers and great accountants. You know, I'd have to assume they wouldn't put them in there. I'd just be curious of like, what was their rationale and how did they defend this risk that they that they were putting this institution into by being able to sell weed? You know, I'm sure there's some really smart people behind this application. You know, what do you do you have any insight on like, you know, what they what their thought process was in, in this application? I don't know what their thought process was, but I do know this. The card application popped up. It was starting to be talked about, I want to say, in March and April of 2022. The application went live. Uh, you know, there were the proposed rules and regs, and that was when we first started reading about this nonprofit ability. I honestly wasn't focused on it because I did not, I was not working with a nonprofit that qualified. And so I was more focused on the rules regarding individuals. Um, and then the rules were approved in August, the application went live and there were, I think it was like 31 days that people had the, the application went live in August. And I remember that cause I was on vacation and I got phone calls from people and I'm like, dude, I'm on vacation. Yeah. Like this can wait one week. But the uh, the application was due September the 26th. That's not a huge amount of time no. to uh, for an organization to meet with its board of directors. Also, at that particular time, August to September, people are taking that one last hurrah of the of the summer. And so to come back and expect the board of directors to really get into the nitty gritty of can we do this? I could see I could very well see how it could slip past. A board of directors that wait a second we've we've got this tax thing that to consider now i will say in the community board meeting the the ceo of housing works that and that's kind of also where my mind started saying wait something's off here because the ceo of housing works said we think that because we're nonprofit, we can potentially offer the products in our cannabis dispensary at a lower rate because we can get around 280e and I thought, no, you can't. What are you thinking? Nobody can get around 280E. The best way to get around 280E is to work with 280E. Build it into your operating budget. Build it into your pricing structure. And that was when I, I also really, uh, I think I had that experience. And then one or two days later, I was on this phone call with Katie in uh, in Oregon. And she said, well, nonprofit, what are you thinking? <laughs> Yeah, we'll see. Um, we'll see what happens. You know, I, I, again, I trust. We won't know till they filed their tax return. Yeah, that'll just be a whole nother can of worms. You know, I, it's it's kind of like this soap opera playing over. You know, the last six hundred and sixty-seven days or whatever it's been with you know leadership and enforcement and licenses and nonprofits and it's like this saga. You know, and. Uh, you know, there's a part of me that's excited. There's a part of me that's a little uh, cautiously optimistic, obviously. Um, but I do hope, you know, and I don't, uh, I hope that at the end of the day that, you know, I feel like we had an opportunity to roll out the best program in the world. And it became more about optics and lip service and actually getting the job done and i see states legalizing after us and getting off the ground before us you know when we have the mm -hmm. most robust biggest cannabis market in the world we had it on a freaking tee paula we had it on a tee and all we had to do was create a program comprised of things that worked from previous programs and leave out the things that didn't and you know as a as a former you know once a week in albany advocate to now a business owner i feel frustrated that I feel like a lot of this headache could have been avoided. Um, but I guess that'll, you know, we'll have to keep, you know, seeing what happens month by month. Um, but I really, really appreciate your time. Um, this has been a pleasure. I, uh, I'm excited okay. to introduce my network to you again, or my, ne my network to you. Um, is there anything that you want to share before we, you know, we hang up anything that you're working on that you're really excited about any piece of legislative action that you're that you hope happens this year. Um, where can people find you any last words before we wrap up uh, for the day. Yeah, and I'll talk quickly um, is there is a viable bill on uh, psychedelics in New York and New York is not alone in really working on psychedelics it's conceivable that we will have that approved before we have a viable 
cannabis I think uh, so. framework actually working in in reality. Um, so that's one thing. And I think that's that's necessary because already in the smoke shops, you're starting to see more uh, mushroom products, whether mm-hmm. it's gummies or capsules or powders. Yep. So I think it's I, I even saw a guy in the park with just a bag of mushrooms. And I'm like, dude, what are you doing? Um, so there's that. Secondly, of course, I'm advocating for this transitional license. I believe that it is vital to secure the licensed industry. So if New York wants its MRTA to be successful, we've got to find a way to transition those existing businesses into the licensed framework. And um, I, I just really think that we need to grasp that enforcement does not work. The government lost. It the never has worked. Run. You know, it never right. has worked. That's why, <laughs> that's why Colorado first began to say, you know what, what we're doing, this this DEA presence, the, all of this, you know, raiding these places, it doesn't work. Enforcement does not work. The war on drugs was lost by the government. So New York is a progressive state. It's a blue state. And what do blue states do when something isn't working? They layer laws and more statutes and more regulations. And they just keep piling it on. And I think that we're now 667 days into that process, which was capped, or this process is capping what was done all of those other years that it was being batted about in Albany. And so we're seeing if 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 they're worried about the smoke shops, well, they're gonna put rules on the smoke shops. It's not gonna work. People will just go below the radar and they're more, comfortable below the radar yeah. by the way it's a lot easier to operate below the radar and the deeper that they yeah. drive these people into the ground it's the harder it's going to be to bring them above board if they ever it may be impossible at some point you know and i've it's um yeah I, I was. Ta- thing, What's sorry that? sorry the other thing that's interesting um you were boots on the ground when they were batting about the different uh rules and regs why did they leave this loophole on gifting and memberships in? We're not the first state to grapple with this. D.C., California, yep. um, Washington State, Oregon, they all grappled with this exact issue of gifting and memberships. And so why, did, why didn't they do their homework and close that loophole? I have yeah. a lot of questions like that that I'd like answered. The why did you do this or why didn't you do that? You know, why did you create a tax structure that looks like this state that's industry is failing? Why didn't you close the gifting and membership loophole, which has been a huge problem in other states? I don't know. It's, it's, uh, I love to have a sit down one on one with the governor or Tremaine or Chris and say, these are the real questions that people are wondering. You know, I would really love some answers because I don't know. I don't know how they miss things like that. I, I I don't. I uh I wish I did, and it'll probably become clearer and clearer as the days go on. Um, yeah. But I, I I and one thing I do before we spark something that you said a couple minutes ago is this transitional license. We've been talking a lot about the retail side of the industry, right? Mm-hmm. How does the transitional license apply to somebody who may just be cultivating or may have a little? edibles brand that wholesales or how do you how do you how does this transitional license apply to the non-retail aspect of the supply chain well that's an interesting question and i focused on the retail because that's kind of the garish and glaring thing that people are complaining about and that to a lot of consumers to a lot of tourists heck to a lot of fellow attorneys those shops are the licensed industry. That is the New York cannabis industry when they see the, the little pot sign. So I have focused on that. But it remains to be seen how many cultivators will actually be cultivating next year. Mm-hmm. Because at the behest of New York State Office of Cannabis Management, people transition from their hemp license and with very little effort or fanfare could get a conditional cultivator license for cannabis. They put seeds in the ground at great personal expense and they're, they're broke. Mm-hmm. They're, they're for the most part, their harvests are in plastic bins mm-hmm. in storage. And of course, with while we've been speaking, that product has gotten less valuable. Mm-hmm. So they'll have to sell it for oil or sell it for biomass or what have you at great sacrifice. And so how many people have the resources 
to actually do that. So, but we also know, like in most states, there are many, many people who have been growing marijuana for generations, mm -hmm. whether they were growing it on their uh, fire escape in East Harlem, or whether they had fields and fields of it in upstate somewhere, or whether they had a greenhouse. They There has been marijuana growing in New York State forever. Mm -hmm. And so I don't know if we're going to be able to bring some of those cultivators into the licensed space, I think it would be a very tough sell based on how it went this first year. Like, why would somebody sign up for that? To me, what makes sense would be maybe we transition the smoke shops. I, I keep coming back to that. That's sort of my, my one verse song. Let's transition the smoke shops and let's impose a tax and create a fund that creates a grant program to transition some farmers or to, how about this? We reimburse those farmers who were licensed last year who could not sell their product at market rate. Yeah, that would be a really good use of, of extra tax money. And you know what? If you present it the right way, you know, big apple weed tax or something like that, uh, I, I think a lot of people would go into the smoke shops and gladly pay the 2% or 4% premium on that product in order to support the farmers. Especially if they market it around this extra 2% is going to help these farmers, which are the really the backbone of the cannabis industry and the food chain, you know? And the, I do- the, the farmers, the processors, the yeah. manufacturers, yeah. I feel they, for they, these farmers too, you know, they grew all this product and it's still for, you know, 99% of it is still sitting in a warehouse. It wasn't two, what, two years ago where they were all set up growing flour and then they got a bill that said smokable hemp flour was not allowed in the legal market, like during harvest. These guys, and right. they, these farmers have taken a beating over the last couple of years. And, you know, I would they love really to have. see something done to help, to help these people out, because I would imagine that after this year, if they don't have an outlet, you're going to see the number of licensees drop significantly. I mean, how many people can really hold on for that long? I mean, they can't. Can. I mean, they weren't in great shape to to start with no. as an industry. Yeah. The industry, the CBD industry bottomed out overnight. You had all this extra product. And then finally, a glimmer of hope where, hey, maybe smokable flour might be a little bit of a way for us to keep our our, our noses above water. Boom, no smokable flour. And then, boom, here's your cultivation license. You can plant no place to sell your product. I mean, these guys have been... And then the whole flip-flop on testing. Yeah. At one point, yes. at one point, the farmer said, there is not a single product in New York that's going to pass your testing guidelines. Nope. So overnight, when it was on a Sunday night that they released, guess what? All of the testing guidelines have been changed, which, what did that do in my mind? Gee, I guess that really wasn't based on science, that you could just change it like that. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, yeah, we, that's, that's, uh, that's something that's kind of grinded my gears for a long time, but that's a t conversation for another day. Um, it sure is. That's a huge issue. Yeah. The optics of public health and social equity, I think have been really, it's, it's really, I think it's become quite clear. A lot of us have been saying it since day one, when you're, you know, Greg and Rosanna and some of the people that we've really been looking between the lines since day one saying we're hearing a lot of lip service about social equity and public health. But at the end of the day, it's really not any that that's the optics of the industry. It's really about tax money, penalizing those who aren't paying their fair share. And it's it could have been done a lot better, I think. But, you know, that's why I sit in the chair and I'm not in Albany. So it's easier to point the finger. But, um, you know, I appreciate what you're doing and putting yourself out there and and, you know, saying a lot of the things that are a lot of, you know, people are wanting to say, but may not have the courage to say it. And uh, it, it really is people like you that drive positive change. So I thank you so much for your time and what you're doing for the industry. And uh, I hope this isn't the last time that we get to chat because I really enjoyed our conversation. Likewise, likewise, and keep spreading the word, you know, cannabis, cannabis cum laude, yeah, really should get some voice and should get the message out there. So I appreciate your work. I will. Well, thank you so much, you know, trying my best to get the good word out there. And uh, I look forward to our next conversation. Everybody, this is Paula Collins, Law Office of Paula Collins in New York City. Um, you can, what's your website again? Uh, you can find me at two different places. One is www.paulacollinslaw.com. Uh, I have a site 
www.mortonstreetgroup, Morton like the salt, okay. mortonstreetgroup.com. Uh, and that's actually focused on the work with the smoke shops. Awesome. And then uh, you're very popular on LinkedIn. Uh, I'll be make sure to share all your social profiles and links. If you haven't read her articles yet, she has some amazing content. Um, that was really what drove this conversation and got us on the phone. So again, thank you so much for your for all the work that you're doing. And I look forward to, to talking to you again soon, Paula. Likewise. Everybody, this has been another episode of Cannabis Cum Laude. I'm happy to say that I think I still know uh, what I'm doing on this podcast, uh, even though it's been a, a couple months since we recorded. I will see you all sometime again soon. Have a good day. Thanks to our friends here at Rockbox Recording and Production in Rochester, New York. They are a full professional podcast and video studio designed by a radio guy for podcasters. Audio, video, voiceovers, editing, whatever. Mouth off at Rockbox at rockbox.com. You can follow Cannabis Cum Laude on LinkedIn and all other social media platforms, as well as Cannabuzz. And if you'd like to help support the show, search up Cannabis Cum Laude on Patreon. And of course, all of those links are in the show notes. Thanks for watching and listening.